9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. Uh, I am joined here in the studio, I'm delighted to say, by Joe Serencioni of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, hi, Joe. Welcome. Good, good afternoon, David. Thank you. Um, it's nice to have somebody join me and Ian <laughs> in here. Um, Rosa Brooks is not actually that far away, is she? No, she's, she's just... not, but she's always at like a spa or, you know, getting <laughs> right. some kind of like, you know, facial or something. Where are you right at the moment, Rosa? Right this minute, David, I'm in my house. Uh-huh. Your house, which is like and, six no blocks one, away, six no blocks one is away. Offering me any spa treatments, and I've noticed that no one in my house ever does offer me spa treatments. Well, you ought to train Rosa Brooks' dog to do that for you. <laughs> yeah, the dog, yeah, the dog thinks that a dog saliva spa treatment is just the thing, but uh, nobody else agrees with her. That is so lovely. And somewhere else in Washington D.C., luxurious, no doubt, is. Edward Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Where are you right now? I'm in my non-luxurious um, home. And you're not. Come on, we all know better than that. I'm sure your home modestly is... well-appointed <laughs> abode. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's all like walnut. Can you describe the decor? Walnut. Yeah, it's all must be walnut paneling and and a butler someplace. Yeah. <laughs> Victorian. I mean, he yeah. works for the Financial Times. I mean, exactly. Uh, Does, doesn't the Financial Times like give you a houseboy or something? Yeah, and a chauffeur. And we've got a helipad, in fact, just down <laughs> in, the back, in the backyard. It's great. Yeah, that's a good life. It's a good life. We don't have that here in the deep state. Um, <laughs> but what we do have is lively conversation. So let's move into that. And let's just start off with... Uh, uh, Ed's most recent column, Trump and the Fear of Fascism in America, which I thought was a really good column, uh, essentially making the point, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Ed, but essentially making the point that Trump, you know, is leading us towards fascism, but he hasn't taken us all the way there. And probably by the time he leaves, we will not actually be a fascist state. Uh, but we'll be closer to one than we were when we started out. Is that roughly your thrust? Uh, yeah, I mean, Trump, uh, what um, prompted me to write it, although I had to delay um, writing it because of all the news in between, was that he himself raised the issue mm-hmm. at that mad cap sort of uh, Jesus fuck moment press conference he gave at the UN General Assembly a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. And he said, am I a fascist? People say I'm a fascist, but then they say I'm incompetent. Well, which is it? Which is which is sort of a fair <laughs> question because uh, although... You say, which would you prefer? <laughs> exactly. A or B. You can, of course, be an incompetent fascist. I think that's, yes, I think C is the answer, all of the above. All of the above is probably the correct answer. But um, I, you know, I, I, what I wanted to address is what is the fascist and how close is Trump to being one? And the, the, the thing that makes him not a fascist, 
which might be a function of that incompetence, is also the sort of larger environment that he operates in, which makes it very difficult for him, if he wanted to do this, to systematically take over all the organs of state and pack them with his loyalists, because fascists are ultimately totalitarians. Um, and Trump isn't really even sort of unsystematically doing this. Sure, he's sort of, he's getting reliably hardline conservative voices onto the Supreme Court when he can. He'd love to get rid of Jeff Sessions. Um, you know, he, he's getting rid of most of the adults um, uh, uh, at the cabinet level. But he's not doing this kind of, um, he's not doing a, a sort of federalist um, society shortlist for every single position in the deep state. And, and if he were, then he would he would be closer to qualifying as a fascist. That said, what he is doing in terms of um, the quality of truth in American public life and of standards and of um, just the sort of epistemological terrorism he's practicing on the American people is softening up the climate uh, of, of, of nihilism. I guess, um, for want of a better word, for a more competent fascist to come along and exploit. Joe, are you relieved? Uh, I think Ed is understating the case. Well, I, go on, take I, him on. I, I, no, 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 no. He's so he, he he he. Ed is bringing us down the road. He's saying, look, here's the signpost that we need to look at, and here's one big one that he hasn't done yet. He hasn't take, uh, militarized. He hasn't taken over the whole. <laughs> well, no, no. You know, there are no brown shirts. There is right. no SS. There is no SA. We don't have thugs actually beating up people routinely at at, at his at uniform. His rallies. We don't have uniform, uniform thugs. Right. So, right. And he and he hasn't taken over the armed forces, etc., etc., etc. Because in America, as Ed points out in his column, this is extremely hard to do. But Trump is implementing the techniques of fascism, you know, the the constant lies, uh, you know, Trump lies like other people breathes, the, the kinds of classic uh, fascist techniques of accusing others of corruption while you are engaged in wholesale corruption, ripping off the assets of the state to, to enrich yourself and, and the elite around you, the nationalism card, Big time, right? Blaming the woes of of the of the country on on others, on the the others that are coming to to get us, and 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 on and on and on. In fact, there's a new book, Jason Stanley from Yale University, has got a, a book on how fascism works. He got an op-ed in the New York Times this week that starts to go through some of these techniques. Madeleine Albright, fascism, a warning. Her new book warns about these techniques, and she quotes Mussolini. And I'll just end with this you know, about fascism. He says, you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, and we're getting a lot of feathers plucked right now. Rosa, that's a, a somewhat darker view, but I always feel fairly confident that if I turn to you, I'll get one even darker. <laughs> well, I, I think it does go back to uh, Ed's initial question, you know, fascist or incompetent, and and I suggested option, option C, uh, both of the above, um, you know, and I think I think Ed is right. Has a, you know, in the sense that we haven't yet slid into fascism. Uh, President Trump has not yet uh, replaced the entire federal bureaucracy with his own minions and so forth, um, um, which Ed Ed's argues is one of the sort of key aspects of the fascist type is you know, to try to take over the organs of the state, you know, purge the military, do the same for the police, intelligence agencies, and so forth. He he hasn't done that. Um, 
which of course is, you know, thank God for small mercies. The only thing I would say, of course, is that it's early days, Ed. Um, He's given time, um, and even an incompetent fascist uh, with competent competent allies may end up doing a great deal more harm than he has done. I I think he certainly would like to do those things. He, He hasn't yet done it systematically, but he's certainly doing his darndest when it comes to the judiciary. He's doing his darndest to create a, a climate in which he can get rid of those who oppose him, including those who oppose him simply for reasons of professionalism as opposed to any particular ideological reason. Um, so I, I, I don't take too much comfort in the fact that we're not there yet uh, a year and a half uh, God, it's only been a little over a year and a half. is is not very long. He's got the remainder of his first term. God, God knows, uh, it is not impossible that he could somehow win a second term. Uh, and there's when you think of the amount of damage he has already done, um, I don't. I, I I think it is neither inevitable nor impossible uh, that he will, in fact, move much more aggressively in precisely the direction. Uh, Ed, that you you fear and that he hasn't moved in yet uh, fully over the next two and a half years or, or God forbid, uh, six and a half years. Well, so Corey, and by the way, folks, Corey Shockey uh, has joined us from <laughs> far off London. I'm thinking London. Um, you're in London, right? I am actually at Wilton Park, a lovely estate outside of London, where I can tell you there is a fainting couch in my room. I'm pleased to report, since all of you know, I'm basically That's a 19th excellent. century woman. Well, wow. and, this, yes. and this discussion might require Also requires it. It, <laughs> it does. I personally, listening to this discussion, I'm getting a bad case of the vapors. Is there a is there a, a <laughs> upstairs made with smelling salts who can be summoned if if necessary? Oh, I hope so because that <laughs> is the state I aspire to, and my own maid is surly and lazy. By which I mean to say she is me. Um, so, <laughs> so I would really like to trade up from me to a really competent upstairs maid. Well, when you visit, <laughs> when you visit a stately loose manor in Northwest DC. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're struggling to find the staff as well. It's, it's, it's been the problem ever since the weekend was introduced. Oh, <laughs> oh what a <laughs> that's a beauty and a great sort of Downton Downton Abbey reference there. But um, so um, which, by the way, so Downton I, Abbey is the story of Ed Luce's childhood. But uh, Corey, I want to ask you a specific um, question here, which which relates to this discussion, but sort of moves it forward a bit and, and talks about. The estimating the velocity of fascization um, that's going on, and and um, d- despite the fact that the last word I use doesn't actually exist, that that Trump has been constrained by the so-called axis of adults. And among those were Gary Cohn and H.R. McMaster and 
Uh, some thought Nikki Haley, who has now departed for reasons which we have discussed, but Rex we are not, not sure. Rex Tillerson to some degree. And of course, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who the president has accused of being sort of a Democrat. If there, if there was ever exit music in this administration, that's the exit music. Uh, so, you know, you could end up with all of the axis of adults or most of them gone. Furthermore, um, uh, in a sort of not well sort of noted uh, transition that's that's also coming, Senator Bob Corker, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has said he's leaving the Senate and he is going to be likely replaced by uh, Senator, what's his name, Jim Risch from Idaho, um, who is a reflexive Trump supporter. Uh, and in fact, it's quite possible that we are going to get people who are more sycophantish and less high quality going forward than we have had. And, and we've already seen a sign of this in that the one of the rumored favorites for the Nikki Haley job, um, uh, Dina Powell, within 48 hours said, I'm not doing that. I'm not I'm not going back in there. And she was one of the more moderate choices. So you've got this sort of likelihood that you're going to get a Trumpier approach to international affairs and a Trumpier approach overall to government going forward than we have had in the past. And that could accelerate all of this. Uh, yes, that's certainly true. I think I give a lot less credit uh, to most of the people you mentioned as restraining forces on President Trump's worst tendencies. I don't see any evidence Ambassador Haley did that. I will simply note that Dina Powell is one of the few Americans still agreeing to participate in Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed Ben Salman's Davos in the Desert, uh, despite the Khashoggi uh, uh, murder, apparently murder, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Uh, I don't, uh, I wouldn't give Bob Corker, Senator Corker, any great, I mean, what's his voting record on President Trump's legislation? Um, so, um, yes, there has been a fair amount of more in sorrow than in anger uh, criticism it, by the legislature, but I'm not sure there have been any great acts of heroism in that regard. So turning the Foreign Relations Committee over to somebody who's even more favorable to the president, I'm not sure how much practical difference that will make. Um, and in the cabinet, uh, are we really going to give Rex Tillerson an enormous amount of credit? I do think he stood for the right policies uh, in Afghanistan and North Korea and in other places. But it is also a member of the cabinet's job to figure out how to um, be persuasive. I do give the Secretary of Defense a lot of credit for trying to shield the Department of Defense from politicization. I think both in the bipartisan appointments he tried to make when he became secretary, almost all of which were squashed by the now Deputy National Security Advisor, 
as the White House's liaison or by the White House themselves. Uh, he was quite strongly constrained, but he has modeled the virtue of nonpartisan behavior and celebrated that 85% of the Congress supported the defense appropriations and authorization bills and really firmly believes that national security ought to be a nonpartisan issue in the United States. So if I were a Democrat, I would right now be trumpeting the president's uh, sense that Jim Mattis is a Democrat and lay credit to this is sensible national security policy. As we Democrats have always been telling you, we are not only capable of, we practice. Well, um, outside uh, of that, I don't. I don't see an enormous amount of restraining influences by the president, although I grant you that it could absolutely be worse and is likely to become worse because the president clearly thinks he's good at his job these days and no amount of adverse data has any impact on that assessment on the president's part. So one of the the, the, the the aspects of the president's policy that, Ed, you have said sort of leads us in the direction of fascism has to do with his lying. You talk about his untruths coming fast and furious, and you talk about a culture of lying leading to nihilism. And we've seen in this past week, you know, a couple of really interesting examples of lying or 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 being willing to sort of play fast and loose with the truth one having to do with this Khashoggi murder parent murder some of the saudis are saying well we don't know it's a murder yet what evidence do we have other than the fact that the guy walked into a building and never walked out mm -hmm. of the building and nobody can produce him um, but 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 the the president has essentially sort of said, well, the Saudis say they didn't do it and they're going to investigate it and, you know, come up with all sorts of things to sort of paper this over, which is very consistent with the approach he has taken to other kinds of um, uh accusations in the past that that he just didn't want to get to the underlying truth of which is you know the the Putin uh situation the Kavanaugh situation North Korean nukes you know and and he sort of papers these things over and you know I was struck in reading the New York Times that uh that in today's Monday's New York Times the subhead on the Khashoggi story talked about Trump reverting to realpolitik um, uh, because, you know, he was looking at sort of the commercial side of the Saudi relationship. And I, and I was saying, you know, actually, it's not realpolitik. Almost every aspect of Trump foreign policy is based on lies. It's, it's not based on reality. It's based on unreality, on untruths. And so digging up, being my father was Austrian, digging into my background and in, in speaking German to my parents sometimes, very in off in not often as a kid, sort of came up with the word unvar politik, which means mm. the politics of untruth. That 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 this is this is mm. Trump's foreign policy. It's also his domestic policy to a large extent. Witness also his comments this week on climate change, um, where he's just not interested in the facts and he's going to make up his own narrative. And he seems the further we get into the the presidency to be more committed to this and less challenged by anybody in his own party. 
And yeah, uh, uh, sorry, is that directed at me, David? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, no, it's actually the German word. I would um, um, one of the few that I know is Lugenpress, lying press, and that you know he's following he's following that Hitlerian technique um, to a T uh, in terms of discrediting uh, both discrediting organs of um, sort of independent media that um, that don't agree with him or that hold him to account, uh, uh, and also individuals. Sort of, it's a matter of time, I believe, um, at one of his rallies before a member of the media is carried out on a stretcher. And we've had, you know, possible uh, Trump-inspired attacks on media outlets um, in the country. So, uh, you know, I think we're, we're all agreeing on the direction he's going. Um, I, I would sort of think of him more as a, an authoritarian, loving nationalist populist who is softening up the ground for um, a, a bona fide fascist um, later on, um, should, God forbid, you know, that, that character emerge. Um, the uh, Khashoggi case... Um, uh, coupled with what Trump said on the 60 Minutes um, interview this past weekend about Putin, oh, well, Putin, whatever he does at home, you know, as long as he doesn't kill anybody on American soil or outside of Russia, um, you, you know, it's, it's all of the same piece. Uh, obviously, Putin has killed many people on British soil. He's def almost certainly killed um, uh, um, a former acolyte, not just on American soil, but um, about two miles from the White House at the DuPont Circle Hotel. Um, in 2015, Mikhail Lessin, who was due um, to um, give testimony um, to the Depart to Department of Justice um, uh, investigators the following day. Um, uh, the um, security camera footage from the corridor uh, where Mikhail Lessin's room was disappeared uh, and um, he uh, committed suicide by repeatedly um, hitting himself in the back of his head. So, I mean, that was almost certainly a Russian, a Putin assassination of a Russian dissident who was going to give information about the Panama Papers, about Putin's finances, in other words, um, on American soil and, and within the shadow of the White House. Trump, Trump will enable um, and um, uh, excuse um, such behavior um, more and more as time goes on. So I share Rose's dread about the direction um, in which this is going. Uh, and I think the the, the Saudi um, killing, almost certainly Saudi, Saudi Arabia, um, um, Mohammed um, bin Salman ordered this killing, is going to be swept under the carpet. Um, so, uh, you know, I generally agree um, with with what Rosa and Joe said. Um, uh, I also, just to add to what Corey said, fully agree that the chief restraint on Trump is, is Secretary Mattis. And, you know, if uh, in, in, in terms of that 60 uh, minutes... That, that well-known Democrat. That well-known dem, that well-known raging West Coast liberal from Stanford, <laughs> um, uh, that, you know, if, as Trump hinted in the same 60 Minutes interview, um, you know, his time might be up soon, um, that then we could be getting more into the Trump replacing sort of people at senior Pentagon level with uh, people who share his ideological impulses, um, in, in which case we'll be entering... A, mm -hmm far more dangerous territory. Well, and, and Joe, you know, some of the names you, you know, hear about these things are Lindsey Graham, who has proven himself to have no spine whatsoever. He's kind of a, 
you know, pilot fish who attaches himself to the side of whatever is the sort of bit larger passing sea creature, you know, that he, 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 he feels will lead him in the right direction, but, or, or Tom Cotton or some of these yes. other guys who sort of appeal to the very worst. And, and so I, you know, I, I, I guess I, I sort of turn to you, you look at the Khashoggi, yes. you look at all of this, the, the, the next year does not look better no. save for a moment no. a possible electoral uh, you know election day change um then 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 you know in almost any scenario yes that's exactly right and you know you can imagine that the cast changing for the worst with people like Lindsey Graham becoming attorney general most people think his performance at the Kavanaugh hearing was a, a, a audition for that role. Uh, Tom Cotton is- By the way, as a former theater director, let me say, I thought his performance was (laughs) over the top. (laughs) You know, it was- (laughs) Ratchet it down, Lindsay. Dial it back a little, Lindsay. Let's go back to the opening. Take two. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yes. Tom Cotton is known to want the Secretary of Defense position, and if, and if uh, Mattis goes, you could see Tom Cotton sliding into that, coasting on his, uh, you know, his, his military service, etc. Um, Dan Coats, if he goes as DNI, uh, there's there's people mounting a campaign to to get. A Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jim Reese appointed, who's known for being a commentator on Fox News. Well, um, and, and and Bolton seems to be pushing to have Rick Grinnell and then this replace Rick, Nikki Haley. Right, have Rick Grinnell come back? Oh my God! You know the man who who says he wants to undermine our allies by promoting the the far right nationalist movements in Europe. This is this is one of the first statements he made when he gets assigned to be ambassador to Germany. So you can see this could get this could get a lot worse. And then this all. Happened happens in the backdrop of the Mueller investigation, which is tightening. Mueller's been very quiet. I don't know if he is, he's consciously not uh, bringing down new indictments in, in the 60-day window before the elections, but he seems to be restrained. But you know he's got stuff. You know they're working. They're not, they're not winding down. They're kind of like winding up. And so in that climate, and say the Dems do take back the House, this is going to get very tense politically for the president. His foreign policy is, despite his assertions just a week ago with Nikki Haley falling apart, isolating the United States and the world. We're not stronger. We're not more respected. We're, we're dramatically less respected. Our The opinion of our allies has just cratered. Our public opinion around the world has just fallen off the table because of what he's done. All of this presents a very desperate situation for him. So you could see the president... Uh, whipping up his base, so more, more propaganda, more rallies, more assertions, uh, and then perhaps being tempted to have a foreign provoke a foreign policy crisis to try to rally the country uh, around this increasingly desperate president, and he would have the cast of characters in place to do it. Um, yeah, provoke a foreign policy crisis. I don't know that he is going to have to provoke one. It may just arrive on his, his, his. Doorstep. I mean, Rosa, this Khashoggi thing is a perfect example. You know, the Saudis were scheduled in a couple of days to behead some women who were dissidents, uh, which would have produced a, a, you know, a kind of a similar reaction. I, th- there's, there's a lot of things out there to which Trump's response um, would likely be very disturbing to a lot of Americans, to our allies, and to the international order. So it's not it's not all things that we'll you know choose to have happen here, but but you know as you look around the horizon, 
there could be a lot of things that accelerate this that are outside of our own doing. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, um, but I, I wanted to go back to the earlier conversation. Um, I'm, I'm just as worried about the Democrats uh, taking the House in the midterms as I am about them not taking the House, because my, my fear my fear is that, um, you know, so the good news is the Democrats take the House. If Democrats take the House, I will be happy. Um, and the good news is that there will be at least some mechanism for having a congressional break on Trump's worst impulses. But I think the the bad news, the potential bad news, um, if the Democrats take the House, particularly if they take the House and the Senate, which is which is less likely, but but not impossible, um, uh, would be that uh, the sort of triumphant uh, Democrats uh, engage in a form of oversight that will be perceived by not only Republicans, but perhaps by independents as sort of revenge-based and obstructionist, act- and that that could actually damage the possibility of, uh, that, that, that could actually increase the likelihood that Trump would win re-election in, in 2020. You know, so I think that there are, there are some, I know, David, you, were, you wanted to focus on external events, but so forgive me for continuing to focus on on U.S. domestic politics, but I think that I think that there we are we are definitely not out of the woods and not likely to be out of the woods that there are as many perils associated with uh, uh, midterm victory as there are with midterm with midterm defeat for the Democrats. No, I think we should talk about that. And in fact, it was my intention that on the next episode of this podcast. Oh um, no, I'm sorry. I that we will. Fi- now well, we have no, nothing no. to talk about in the next episode. Well, the next all. one will be 45 minutes of silence, I suppose. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> it's you know it's okay. It'll be a good break for everybody. Quite soothing. Um, John Cage like for those of you who get the classical music reference. But um, uh, you know, Corey, one of the other aspects of all of this, which um. You know, I may, may, maybe the, the most important aspect of it is that in the past, when people behaved like the Saudis did with Khashoggi or where like the Russians have done in um, uh, the UK and elsewhere, like the North Koreans are doing with building new nukes or other uh, violations of human rights that take place around the world, the United States would stand up. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we would actually do a lot. Doesn't sometimes we would do less than we should, but but there was seen a you know sort of resistance to this and a potential cost and leaders overseas would have to calculate what is the U.S. response going to be, and in the course of two years of the Trump administration, it is very clear that the U.S. response is nothing. Go ahead, have your so, yeah. Go on. I actually want to disagree with that, David. Uh, Because that has been the president's tendency, but to tack back into support of the great Ed Luce, uh, that has not been the American government's reaction. Uh, Sanctions on Russia for the scruple of poisoning were pushed through by Congress. The Treasury Department has gone gangbusters on sanctioning individual Russians um, for their malign behavior all over the place. The, the president even got dragged into having the United States government be the country that expelled the largest number of Russian intelligence officers after the Skirpov poisoning. So the record's actually a lot better than you would think it was, given the president's statements. Even in the case of um, 
of the there's a very strong parallel between the president's kind of, well, it could have been rogue agents. Uh, that's where he started on the skirtball poisoning and was actually corralled into doing the right thing. So you're right that uh, the president's statements create an undue amount of uh, anxiety about whether the United States stands for anything in the world, whether we are going to protect our friends and push back against malign subterfuge um, and murder of the kind that the Russians and evidently the Saudis are committing. But the the government actually hasn't done half bad at dragging the president along to sensible American policies. So I basically don't like the narrative of ignore what the president says, just watch what his government's doing, because I agree with you that there is damage that the president's statements make. But the policies have actually been better on these issues than you would think from listening to the president. Okay. I and I think that may be a bit of a glass half full, glass half empty analysis of this thing. And I, I understand why you raise it. It's fair. But Ed, you know, I think the other way to, to, to look at this is clearly the president has given a free pass to Putin and to the Saudis and to the North Koreans to some extent. He was talking to Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes and she was like, you know, you know, Kim is a murderer and, a you know, a, you know, runs prison camps and so on. And he's like, well, look, I like him. You know, if it gets it done, it gets it done. And so on, on the one hand, well, Corey's right. The fact that the president's sending a different message matters. And it seems to be that a lot of these countries are behaving more in this way than they might have in the past. And I think one might also make the case, and we don't really have the time for it here, but one might also make the case that having a president who doesn't push for sanctions, push for human rights, push to punish them, produces less than the desirable penalties for this and that that people get off easier. And while we may have put some sanctions in place for some Russians and so forth, uh, I don't think Putin is complaining relative to past U.S. leaders. So I guess the point is, what's your take? Is the signal that this administration sending exacerbating the problems we face worldwide? Uh, I, you know, I think there is a a cycle in uh, American administrations going back 70 or more years where you'll get some more repressive or more prickly um, foreign governments, developing countries that prefer Republican administrations traditionally as being less preachy, less hung up on human rights, less inclined to sort of attach um, conditions to arms sales and so forth, um, and that and that dislike Democrats. I mean, I can think of the Chinese, um, successive Chinese um, uh, leaders, um, Indian governments, and many other countries for whom that would be true. There was a bias towards um, Republicans. I think Trump um, is a spectacular sort of metastasizing of that Republican um, a tendency to turn a, a blind eye to stuff that, you know, upsets liberals and squeamish people, you know, like people being dismembered and dissolves in, dissolved in baths of acid in, uh, in, in consulates in Turkey or uh, people being poisoned in Salisbury or, or people, you know, killing themselves in DuPont Circle Hotel. Um, the uh, legacy of that is if we do get, whether we get... 
you know, somebody who's um, a, a conventional or a more liberal democratic successor to Trump um, or um, a more conventional Republican down the line six and a half years or two and a half years from now is that when America does try and uphold its better standards, it's going to be a lot more difficult. It's just going to be and this is a best case scenario that we even get an administration that's trying to do that. It's going to be dramatically more difficult because people are going to point and say, you guys elected Trump. Trump enabled all this kind of behavior, profited from it. Um, uh, it was as cynical and as um, uh, uh, um, contractual in his approach to foreign policy as, as you could possibly get. Um, and now you're preaching to us. So, you know, I think the longer term damage, even in the best case scenario that Trump is replaced by, uh, you know, somebody upholds American values, the longer term damage is hugely corrosive um, of, uh, you know, any kinds of um, uh, American ability to uphold in desirable international norms. And this is just one area. That point, of course, applies um, far more broadly than just the human rights um, area and applies to elections. It applies to um, it, it applies to the rule of law. So I, I want to go to Rosa in, in, a, in a second. Maybe we'll give Rosa the last word here. But I, I I've noticed that as Ed was talking, Joe was mm -hmm. grunting and nodding, <laughs> and she he could have been having a neurological incident for all I know. But but um, no, he's smiling now. I think you're okay. But um, uh, perhaps I, I do I do bring on neurological incidents. I apologize, Joe. Well, I just want to agree with Ed. I mean, what, what he's saying, like, you know, whether or not this leads us down the path to fascism, there's no question that it has profoundly harmed America's standing in the world. And it comes on, the, uh, you know, after the, the disastrous decision to invade Iraq has, you know, the people said that was the most, the biggest strategic blunder in American military history. It has consequences. We're still living with that. That damaged U.S. credibility and raised profound questions about our leadership. But people thought George W. Bush was an anomaly. And then they got Obama and they thought, okay, now we're getting back on the right track. And now they're thinking maybe Obama was the nom anomaly. Maybe Trump is really representing what America is, is about. And you're seeing countries around the world question our leadership, start to see if they can't develop more independent uh, mechanisms that don't rely as much on American leadership. This is hard to do because we are so dominant economically, culturally, and of course, mil militarily. But but we have at least, as, as Rosa points out, at least two more years of Trump. And as we've discussed on this podcast before, if he gets elected, we might have eight years of Trump. And at that point, you're looking at profound damage, if, if not just domestically, but internationally to U.S. global standing. This is going to be a major repair job, and it's unlikely we can ever get back to where we were before Trump. <sighs> uh, two things, Rosa. You can pick up on either one of them. Um, I'm not sure I, I I accept all of Joe's analysis there in the sense that I see Bush to Obama to Trump as a bit of a continuum because I think Obama largely pulled back from international engagement with a couple of exceptions. I think the Iran deal was an exception. Um, I also think the Paris Accord and the TPP were an exception. They were both kind of later in the day, well, you know, the, 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 I mean, the Paris Accord had some flaws with it uh, and so forth. But I think, for example, in the Middle East, there was not as much engagement elsewhere. 
Um, but but we can debate that. What what I'm struck by in listening to this conversation is that there's some pretty urgent uh, uh, threats perceived out here, and um, and yet I'm not hearing anybody in Democratic leadership say that. You know, I'm not I'm not hearing big pushback. I'm not hearing the alarms. Sound it now. Maybe it's because we're focused on midterm elections, and that's all very local. But but do, do do you identify any voices out there other than the sort of wonk community, you know, the ones the nerds of deep state radio follow, the ones that were cited by Joe at the beginning, you know, the you know the the, the Madeline Albrights and so forth. Do do you, do you hear anybody standing up and saying, "Hey, folks, we're headed for a cliff." No, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, the 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 truism in American electoral politics, uh, you know, is has always been Bill Clinton's. It's the economy, stupid, or at any rate, it's it's domestic issues that drive voting behavior almost all the time. With you know, with with the occasional and rare exception, like the two thousand six midterm elections. Uh, which were very much affected by uh, uh, high casualty rates in the Iraq war. Um, you know, that, that that we have to be in the middle of a crisis that has been going on for a while and is really on people's minds for it to, it seems, uh, have a profound impact on their voting behavior. So in that sense, I'm not particularly surprised that the various uh, Democratic candidates and People who are trying to position them, so not only the, the candidates running right now in the midterm elections, but also um, the folks trying to position themselves to run for president in 2020, are almost entirely focused on domestic stuff, with with the exception of the, the, the trade and tariffs issue, which obviously is a sort of spillover issue. Um, I mean, it, it's too bad for all the reasons that you mention, but but it doesn't particularly surprise me. That's that's the reversion to the norm, and that's part of the reason that I'm not optimistic about the future. You know that that uh, you know empires don't last forever. The American empires had a pretty good run, um, but I think that all signs point to continued decline, partly because. We cannot interest most of the American public in any of these issues. Um, that is likely to continue to be the case, and that is likely to be one of the reasons that the American empire uh, is is probably not going to last a whole lot longer. Let me just add one quick thing. You want to you want to add something to that? The American <laughs> empire is doomed. <laughs> Cheery. Just, just on the more narrow piece of the the democratic yeah. articulation of a national security alternative policy, you're beginning to see some. Bernie Sanders gave a, a major talk on this last Monday, unfortunately completely overshadowed by the Nikki Haley uh, resignation announcement. But what's but Rose is absolutely right. During a, 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 a midterm election, that's not the time for the Democrats traditionally would raise this. But if they do take back the House, then you will see the House be sort of the proving grounds for this. This is traditionally what happens. The Democrats will hold this, and you'll see the hearings, House Armed Services, uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee, start to try to sketch out what the Democratic alternative would be. That's I, I think that there's some truth to that, actually. And, I, and, and so let me slightly revise what I said. I, I, I do think that not not coming from uh, political candidates trying to get elected, but that finally in the last six months, we've begun to see some signs that the uh, sort of centrist Democrats are kind of scratching their heads and going, 
oh, maybe we do need to think a little harder about all this. You know, because I, I think that the initial response after after Trump's election, um, there was this very defensive response, um, a, a reluctance to seriously examine uh, democratic foreign policy commitments and and instead to sort of chalk it all up to, you know, well, this has just been a terrible mistake. Hillary Clinton actually won. Look, she got three million more votes, which means that we don't need to ask ourselves any difficult questions about whether we screwed up. We can chalk it all up to the Electoral College and, you know, lower voter turnout. But there, there's no fundamental problem here. And I think that that has shifted in the last six months to a little bit more willingness to say, you know, maybe the way we think and talk about foreign policy uh, is not ideal. Maybe we need to think about, you know, Trump's critique of globalization and the ways in which we have uh, enabled that critique in some ways and so forth. So so, so there, there are a bunch of efforts still kind of unconnected to begin to say, hmm, you know, what would a really progressive approach to foreign policy be? It'll be really interesting to see if which of any of them go anywhere. I'm not super optimistic, but at least that conversation is starting. Well, as I was about to say, Joe really summed things up in a great way to tee us up <laughs> for, for the next podcast. Um, um, May and- I just add one quick thing? <laughs> the one quick thing what part of that- teeing up didn't you quite get? There? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, we're supposed to save it for the next pod, but, but we won't. Okay, I'll wait for the next pod. Silence. Uh, t- 45 minutes of silence. Uh, no. Yeah, I thought we were under the 45 minutes of silence. That's why I was telling uh, Say everything now. Say it quickly. Go on. Go on. <laughs> There's a really interesting piece in the New York Times about how progressives need to learn how to own the patriotism mm-hmm. issue again. Mm-hmm. And while I don't agree with all of it, that is, I think it is far too critical. Um, the National Security Democrats, I know, uh, are, are own patriotism proudly. But they, it really does make a good argument that that um, you know President Trump has latched on to something, and without normalizing his behavior or supporting his positions, there is an enormous progressive argument to make. And I personally think our country is much better off when both parties own this issue and talk about instrumentalities for it. No, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that the progressives are doing their very best by turning to people like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who both fought in the American Revolution. (laughs) (laughs) They go way back, way back. Still rising as a clear centerfield fan. Well done. It's our way. It's our way of staying on top of that. Um, All right, folks. (laughs) We're going to keep this going. By the way, those of you who are not members who have not signed up at deepstateradionetwork.com to be members. If you had signed up, you could listen to the second podcast right now. You could just stream one into the other. You wouldn't have to wait till Thursday. If you don't, if you're not a member, you're going to have to wait till Thursday. But if you were a member, you could get that. You could get a mug. You could get a whole bunch of other fantastic um, things. And, you know, 
um, maybe even first chance to go and join us at the Deep State Victory Party, which is going to take place on election night at 9.30 p.m. at the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village, where we, some of these very people here, and some comedians will be giving you live play-by-play of what's happening on the election and um, jokes. And, you know, tell the analysis from the jokes. Tell the jokes from the analysis. It's the, you know, it's the <laughs> challenge of the evening. And the more drinks you have, the harder it'll be to do. Uh, but we hope you'll join us there. We hope you'll sign up and be a member. We hope you'll be there for the very next podcast. And in the interim, I hope you will join me in thanking Corey and Rosa and Ed and Joe for this discussion that kept wanting to be the next discussion. Bye-bye. <laughs> Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.